0: I'm not sure there is a more delicious delight in life than to learn about an amazing, wonderful person about whom you have never known anything at all. I did not even know the name of Mary Lasker until I read Judy Pearson's wonderful new book called Crusade to Heal America, The Remarkable Life of Mary Lasker. This woman, who actually uh, grew up in Watertown, Wisconsin, and uh, and in many respects uh, never left behind her Midwestern roots, nevertheless uh, was a, an amazing force of nature over the course of her long life. Uh, she lived into her 90s, and for most of her adult life, she devoted uh, an amazing amount of, of of energy and passion to the causes about which she cared, and most deeply, she cared that that we as as a society come to a better understanding of disease and illness, and uh, and make some dramatic inroads uh, in conquering the diseases uh, which caused so much suffering. She was a remarkable woman. So was her husband, Albert Lasker. And he figures prominently in the pages of this wonderful new book, which is published by Mayo Clinic Press. Again, it's titled Crusade to Heal America, The Remarkable Life of Mary Lasker. And I'm so excited to have Judy Pearson with me on the phone to talk about her wonderful book. Judy Pearson, we welcome you to The Morning Show.
1: Thank you so much. What a terrific introduction. You're hired.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a great book. I really, really loved it. And I... I. Must confess to some embarrassment at having never even heard of this incredible woman. I wonder if you could uh, explain your first encounter with this with this woman. I mean, with this uh, name that is. When did you first become aware of Mary Lasker and her significance?
1: Of course. And, Greg, you mustn't be ashamed. Um, I didn't know of her either. Most people outside of the city of New York have never heard of her. So we're all in the same boat. And I have a passion for bringing stories of unsung heroes, particularly medical heroes, to the fore. So it's all good. I uh, published a book in 2021 called From Shadows to Life which is a biography of the cancer survivorship movement. And it's a group biography of five people who brought survivorship out of the shadows because people were still concerned that cancer was contagious, that there were germs that could be caught. It's it's also a fascinating story. And it begins, the first chapter begins with Mary Lasker um, engineering uh, the National Cancer Act, which President Nixon signed in 1971. And just the brief research I did on her for that, I was hooked. I could hardly wait to dig into her life. And I was so fortunate because uh, she did a very extensive oral history over the course of almost three decades um, with Columbia University and with the provision that it not be released until after her death. And they had the foresight to transcribe it. So I read all 2,000 pages and relied heavily on it for the conversations in the book. It was I could just hear her saying these things.
0: <laughs> you also mention uh, in that portion of the book where you're kind of explaining about that oral history that Mary Lasker's mother left behind uh, an unpublished memoir as well. Uh, did you get to consult that as well, and to what extent was that helpful?
1: I did, so... Watertown has a wonderful history center in the octagon or near the octagon house and um, I made two visits there. Uh, Michelle Lampy is the is the director and she was so gracious to share everything with me. She and her family ironically live in Mary's childhood home. Mary's father was a successful banker in Watertown and um, built one of the most magnificent homes at the time and still in town. And so Michelle and her family live there. And so she brought a lot of things to her house on our first visit and spread them out over her dining room table. So I took picture after picture of Sarah. It was Mary's mother uh, of her memoir, which um, is really a story in and of itself.
0: One choice that you make, well, it's perhaps not even a choice. I guess there's no way that you could tell the life story of Mary Lasker without uh, also telling the story uh, of her husband, Albert. I think, however, somebody could conceivably write a book about Mary that would perhaps not include quite so much about her husband. I'm so glad that he is has formidable a presence in this book Uh, as he is. I mean, I think you have done exactly the right thing by, uh, in a sense, telling us the story not only of this amazing woman, but also of the amazing man to whom she was married and their amazing partnership. Uh, I mean, without that element, this story, while still fascinating, would not be as fascinating nor as complete.
1: You know, I think what you've said is absolutely true. And in addition to that, I would say that I believe that we are all shaped by our experiences and our relationships. And so it's absolutely true that Mary had this drive and this compassion for humanity and all the things that that made her. And she probably would have gotten a great deal done left to her own devices, but as those of us who are fortunate enough to have found a wonderful life partner know, having that support is just, it it just gives you that extra degree, and in Albert's case, having an extra uh, hundred or so million dollars, more than that, um, in today's money didn't hurt either, um, because it allowed Mary, who already had a fairly healthy address book uh, in New York City, in New York City society in the 1930s and 40s, Albert's connections just made that blossom. And whenever I tell the story of their their love and their marriage, it just, you know, they have learned from previous relationships and brought those lessons together to this Wonderful love affair of all time. True. I I see Meryl Streep as Mary Lasker. I haven't found an Albert character, uh, actor for the movie that I'm envisioning will happen. So I'm taking <laughs> I'm taking suggestions.
0: Right there you go. And of course you quote us uh, uh, quote Mary Lasker herself in a, a 1967 interview, uh, saying something to the effect that. My life would really make uh, quite a good musical, <laughs> and, and, I, and I think it's absolutely true, and uh, there, there's so much here.
1: Yep, absolutely. I, I think, at the very least, um, it's certainly movie-worthy, so we all have our fingers crossed.
0: Absolutely. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Judy Pearson about a brand new book called Crusade to Heal America The Remarkable Life of Mary Lasker, a book published by the Mayo Clinic Press. This is a book about Mary Lasker and, to some extent, her husband Albert as well, and Mary Lasker's tireless efforts to try to, in a sense, bring medical research fully into the 20th century, for it to be Supported by the federal government and 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 become far more effective in combating and eliminating the suffering caused by all kinds of different uh, diseases, including especially heart disease and 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 cancer among among other maladies. At one point, uh, you write her ability to nudge the unconvinced, including scientists, uh, 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 members of Congress, and even presidents. I mean, became so significant o- o- over time. In the book, as you talk about her growing up in Watertown, Wisconsin, uh, you tell us that in various ways, for various reasons during her childhood, she experienced a growing frustration with illness. And apparently one of the most powerful uh, moments from her life came when she was just five years old, and she and her mother went to uh, visit a certain woman there in Watertown, uh, who I think worked for them. Uh, can you describe this scene to our listeners? It apparently had a very powerful and lasting effect on uh, young Mary Lasker.
1: Absolutely, and and in fact it was so powerful that she repeated it several times in her oral history. Because again, if you think about, it's one thing for you and I to have this chat, but imagine... Um, If we did this over decades and she revisited this image several times so it it was seared into her memory she was about five years old and um, her mother from whom Mary um, inherited or learned compassion for fellow humans um, her mother was taking her to visit mrs. Belcher who was the family laundress and um, on the way Sarah, Mary's mother, said that Mrs. Belter had had cancer, had had breast cancer, and had had her breast removed. And Mary looked at her and said, you mean like cut off? And Sarah said, yes. And Mary couldn't wrap her mind around that. And then when she got to this house, she said the scene was just so horrible. This woman was lying on this low cot with this assemblage of pitiful-looking children all around her. <clears throat> and we never know whether Mrs. Belter survived or not, but the idea that people should suffer like that. And even at her tender age of five or six, Mary just determined that something must be done. And then she spent her freshman year in college um, at the University of Wisconsin, go Big Ten, I'm a Michigan (laughs) State grad, Um, and she developed the Spanish flu, you know, the 1918 pandemic, and so she recalled lying in the student infirmary thinking this is it, you know, there must be something more that can be done for illnesses than is already being done, and Mm -hmm. that was the seed that was planted in her mind.
0: Right. I'm, I'm fast forwarding here just a little bit, but I'm, I'm thinking that it's also safe to say that uh, another reason why some of these concerns were so acute for her um, might have stemmed in part from her marriage to her first husband, uh, a gentleman by the name of Paul Reinhart, uh, whom she very much loved, but unfortunately uh, lived with the scourge of alcoholism and uh and not that not that that specific cause was uh exceptionally important to to Mary Lasker, I mean we don't think of her uh in those terms particularly, but it seems to me that that was probably one more way uh in which Mary's concern for others and kind of her preoccupation with human frailty and what we can do to help people who are suffering from something or other, uh, and, and mental illness was one of her major causes, it, it seems to me that this was perhaps another contributor to her great passion.
1: It, it truly was. She became very interested in mental health, in um, the work that Sigmund Freud was doing, and um, uh, the managers in, in Kansas, <clears throat> Paul... I suspect given and Mary suspected giving her description also suffered from depression and um, maybe some other things as well. And so the mental health aspect was really the first thing that she became interested in. And then that coupled with Paul's alcoholism and the country's depression in the 1930s, um, he just wouldn't help himself. And she just simply couldn't um, couldn't go on. And she said, it was killing me. And so she divorced him and struck out on her own. Mm.
0: I want to ask you about a couple of other aspects of her uh, early life. Uh, you mentioned that uh, when she uh, went to, to Radcliffe, uh, she studied art with the uh, intention of being an art dealer. And there was a time in which this was essentially her the, 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 the primary focus of her professional efforts in the world of fine art. Um, I wonder, I mean, because now we, of course, remember her for something entirely different that at a glance would seem to have nothing to do with that particular passion. Uh, can you tie those together? Are there ways in which that chapter of her life had any kind of resonance or carryover uh, into the Crusades, which she ultimately undertook?
1: I think that um, she summed it up best herself, that her interest in art and her love of art, along with her love of flowers, really sort of offset the ugliness of disease. And she was working so hard, as I just mentioned um, to help her ex-husband. And, and actually, even after she divorced him, his gallery fell into, um, it, it just fell away. And she continued to support him through her own business because she felt so badly for him. And so, and, and then she is responsible for all of the plantings down the center of Park Avenue and the cherry trees in front of the UN. And she helped later, Lady Bird Johnson, in her beautification efforts in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere. And she just said, you know, you, everybody needs a lift, And art and flowers, she felt, were, were public things that could be accessible to other people. But in addition to that, there were times she and Albert started the Albert and Mary Lasker Foundation in 1911. 19- Um, 40 and 42, excuse me, and um, there were times that she later on sold pieces from her massive private collections in order to support the organization that was making research bargains Albert called the Making Awards to researchers. And even beyond that, in the 1980s, there was a component in blood thought to be you know, perhaps a cancer cure. It's called interferon. It's very expensive to to procure because blood has to go through several rounds and centrifuges. And Mary sold an entire collection of Japanese art um, for several million dollars to underwrite federal research in that, which embarrassed both the National Institutes of Health and the American Cancer Society. So then they got on board, too.
0: Wow. So I I would love to have you just briefly. I mean, I wish we had more time for this, uh, but I'd love you to briefly describe the kind of life that uh, that she was enjoying, particularly professionally, uh, in the years before she met Albert. Uh, at one point, you talk about when she moved to New York City. I think she was twenty-two years old. Uh, you you write it was a fabulous time to be a new woman. In New York City. Uh, Explain what she was like at this point in her life and the kind of things uh, she was doing early on uh, before she ultimately met uh, the man who would become her second husband, Albert Lasker.
1: She, again, inherited these wonderful um, qualities from Sarah. So in, in addition to the love of things beautiful, Sarah after she immigrated to the U.S. at the age of 18, in a decade became the highest paid woman in Chicago as the head of the dressmaking department at Carson Perry Scott. So Mary inherited this business acumen and this business drive as well. So they, she just realized that there were things that could be done with the art gallery that had never been thought of before. Yes, there were the old masters, and they're beautiful, and they sell for lots of money, but modern art, and at that era, the modern artist was an impressionistic artist, um, which is actually my personal favorite um, uh, segment of art. They were becoming really popular. They could be had for less money, which allowed people with less money to get into the art-buying Um, world. And so Mary was responsible for bringing Henri Matisse to the U.S. for the very, excuse me, not Matisse, Um, oh my gosh, my mind's just gone blank, it'll come to me, for bringing a French artist to the United States for the very first time to do a show, Marc Chagall, I'm sorry. And now Chagall is world famous, his paintings go for millions of dollars. She, She brought him to the U.S. for his first show, and they mixed his pieces, his Impressionist pieces, in with the old masters. It was brilliant.
0: Mm, Marvelous. Well, it's time for us to fold into this uh, conversation Albert Lasker, who was... uh, an amazing person in and of himself and also somebody about whom most of us have, have, have never heard anything at all. I mean that his name was as unfamiliar to me as Mary Lasker. Uh, but then you start, uh, learning about the kind of things he did and the, and the, the, the effect that he had on our country and our society uh, is really quite incredible. Uh, he was uh, in, 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 uh, to, to put it very mildly, an advertising genius, and uh, spent decades at uh, one of chicago's most uh, important advertising firms lord and thomas and uh, It sounds like he brought to the advertising business uh particular skills and gifts that were maybe not all that commonplace and that's probably one reason why this man who had no schooling behind beyond high school was able to achieve such extraordinary success. Tell us more about uh, Albert Lasker, the advertising genius, and uh, the, the, the reasons for his tremendous success.
1: Like Mary, Albert was always looking for the next great idea. And he really didn't even want to be in advertising. His father sent him um, from Galveston. Actually, Albert wanted to go to Chicago. And his father from Galveston as a young man. And his father said, okay, but here's the deal. Um, You can follow your passion into newspapers. That's what he wanted to do in two years. First, I insist you give two years of your time to a business. And Albert's dad knew, the elder Lasker knew, Um, Mr. Lord, and so said, I've hooked you up with a job. You got to do this for two years. And if you really hate it at the end, then you can move on. And thankfully, Albert uh, incurred a gambling debt and had no choice but to continue working at the ad agency. But he realized that there were things that could spice it up. So instead of just copy, I mean, if you ever look at an old newspaper, and I'm talking about newspapers from the first decades of the 20th century, there's nothing but print. And Albert said, why can't we add some artwork? And he hired, by that time he had achieved a little bit of seniority, the agency, and he hired um, an artist to do some graphics. And then he said, and let's make the copy interesting. Let's have catchy phrases. And Albert came up with the names Sunkissed and SunSweet and Kleenex. And also the idea of premiums, send in a box top, send in uh, a can label for a spoon or whatever they were giving away. And all of this was revolutionary and was what made him so successful and ultimately, made the agency so successful.
0: It's incredible all the people that he knew, and uh, and uh, I mean, like for instance, at at one point he becomes a principal owner of the Chicago Cubs, along <laughs> with a famous uh, Chicagoan uh, with the last name of Wrigley, <laughs> and uh, and 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 I mean, there are other you know really really big big important people that that figure in Albert Lasker's uh story and uh among other things you you mention in his life that he uh helped with the ad campaign for the gentleman who became uh president uh, after Woodrow Wilson uh uh, uh uh William Harding and uh and in thanks for his assistance he was appointed chairman of the US shipping board and you tell us that this was probably really significant, even beyond whatever work he was actually doing because of what he learned about the way the U.S. government functions and what it takes in order to to make things happen. Tell us more about that.
1: And again, this is one of those interesting little side stories that, you know, you go through life collecting experiences and collecting acquaintances And you don't think of their significance until you look behind you and think, wow, now look where I am. So Albert's experience as head of the shipping board, because that was a big thing at the time, um, and I I need to backstep just a little bit. So um, presidential campaigns were just beginning to use ad agencies for successful campaign ads, and that is how – Albert and Harding became known because Albert managed his campaign. So Harding made him head of the shipping board sort of as a thank you. And Albert liked it to a certain extent, but but missed advertising, that's for sure. But what he learned was exactly as you described, how government works. And so between that experience that I write about and then later on in the book as the National Cancer Act makes its way through Congress – the the process of government. It's what's the story about the sausage, and you don't want to see how it's made. Exactly. I I kind of hope that readers can can appreciate how hard it is to get anything done. But with Harding, uh, after Albert and Mary le- uh, met, and she wanted to donate money to get research into heart disease and cancer started. He said, "You don't need my kind of money. That's that's not nearly enough. That's a drop in the budget or a drop in the bucket. But I know where we can find money, and I'll show you how to get it." So he taught her how to friend raise, and then, excuse me, how to fundraise for uh, political um, folks who were running for office, and then how to friend raise, making friends of those same politicians who were sympathetic to their health crusade. And that really made the difference in getting the needle to budge. Listeners have to understand, again, money was not being spent by anybody in the country on medical research. It was just considered if you got cancer or had a heart attack, it was an act of God. Sorry, you're going to die. And doctors were having to go to Europe to be trained. So this is just ridiculous in the most powerful country in the world.
0: Absolutely. And it's it takes somebody with some vision to realize that the way things have always been is not the way they always have to be. And, right. uh, and both Mary and Albert Lasker were, were certainly people of, of vision. Um, I don't want to go any further without us mentioning uh, Albert Lasker's first wife, Flora, uh, a, a fairly amazing woman uh, herself uh, in, in some ways, and, and uh, one of the most uh, interesting things about that marriage was how very, very short, tragically short it nearly was because of how terribly ill she became almost right away. Do I remember it was typhoid fever that she contracted almost immediately after their marriage?
1: Right, right, and I think that um, it certainly weakened her body. I think she might have had some other maladies rolled in. And um, she, she too had this indomitable spirit. She was a little bit different than Mary, certainly. But Flora enjoyed Albert's, um, Albert's wealth and, and the, the lovely houses that they lived in and their Apartments in both Chicago and New York, but it wasn't grandeur. wasn't Flora's main goal. It was just living in happiness with her husband and their three children. And um, it was it was heartbreaking for Albert when she ultimately died. It was heart failure of some sort, and he it was not expected. Mm. Other than the fact that she'd always been in a weakened state. It was not expected at
0: all. That was in 1936. A few years before that, uh, you tell us that uh, Albert and his wife, Flora, first wife, Flora, actually created something called the Lasker Foundation for Medical Research. So interestingly enough, even at this relatively early time in Albert Lasker's life, uh, he already had some interest in this, although... Uh, the work that he and Mary would ultimately do for that cause uh, <laughs> would really dwarf this this initial uh, effort. But uh, it's really interesting to think about how how early the roots for what was to come were already in place.
1: That's right, and and it's another interesting connection in Mary and Albert's lives. Albert's younger brother had died of cancer. And um, so he began this foundation and seeded it with what today would be over a million dollars in the hopes um, through the University of Chicago in the hopes that it would be something uh, to jumpstart research that could cure cancer because that's what everyone thought at the time. It was a single disease. Typhoid fever was a single disease. Polio, pneumonia, you know, name your disease, and it was something singular that you could attack, which now we know is not the case with cancer. Um, but they did, and they they made grants, and um, I don't know how much ever came of, of that. It's not talked about in either of the biographies about Albert that I used as sources, nor does Mary talk about what the results of that might have been. But it certainly gave Albert a taste in what a foundation can do if properly funded.
0: Right. Uh, We don't have time to really talk about it, but you do spend a little bit of time in your book talking about uh, some of Albert's own fragility, including... Uh, what you call at one point his demons, and 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 the likelihood that perhaps he actually suffered from uh, bipolar disorder or something similar. Uh, his, as you've already mentioned, his his beloved wife Flora dies in 1936. This is unexpected, and in the wake of his grief, uh, Albert rather impulsively marries another woman and almost immediately realizes as does she that it was a big mistake so that 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 second marriage is is very very brief it was even before that that uh, Albert met Mary for the very first time and and nothing much came of, of the that that first encounter but uh a little bit later when he had fewer distractions he came to uh be quite entranced with her, and vice versa. You quote Mary as telling, I think, maybe her mother uh, right after they, the two of them had, had lunch, that is, Albert and Mary, uh, Mary saying, I've just had lunch with the most exciting man I've ever met. And, uh, and we know enough about Mary to know that she'd already met some exciting men, but apparently nobody who intrigued her as much as Albert did. Yeah,
1: that's very true. He was um, just so charismatic, and even in his fragility, um, and she recommended that he be analyzed, and as Albert was, he not only agreed to be analyzed, because that was what you did in those days if you suffered from any kind of um, mental issues, Um, he not only was analyzed, but he was intrigued by the process, and went several times more in order to discuss the whole idea of analysis and psychology, and he was more interested in the science than he was in straightening himself out, but it appeared to really make a difference mm. later in his life.
0: Interesting. So at this point in time, uh Mary is 39 years old, Albert is 58, and so he is a, a, a bit gun-shy. Uh, about their age difference. I mean, not that he, probably Mary as well. Uh, And he's also gun-shy because of this sort of disastrous, impulsive second marriage, and he doesn't want to make that mistake again. And yet, he finds himself just inexorably drawn uh, to this remarkable woman. Uh, You say at one point, Mary intrigued him, she enthralled him, and she terrified him. (laughs) But nevertheless... uh, He is able to, uh, in a sense, overcome his fears, and the two of them are married uh, in the summer of 1940 as the storm clouds of World War II are beginning to engulf uh, Europe and soon the whole world. Uh, As you describe their marriage, uh, I mean their wedding and uh, their small little simple wedding and their intriguing honeymoon and so on, you then go on to talk about uh, Mary's attitude about money. That is his money and her money. And this is so fascinating, and it says so much about her. Uh, explain to our listeners what I'm talking about here.
1: Well, her father, as I said, was successful, but he was also a penny pincher. And he was a kind, gentleman, but he just was very much a penny pincher. And it made Mary crazy to watch her mother have to ask her father for money and then explain why she wanted the money and... Mary decided that was not going to be her, and after already having helped run the, the art gallery and then creating her own business, um, plus she had inherited money from her parents after they died, she was you know she was perfectly self-sufficient. And when she was asked one day after their marriage, by a woman who came to visit at, and the woman asked for a donation for some charity, and Mary said, "Well, I, I can't afford to give you the kind of money you're asking for." And the woman looked around this magnificent townhouse that she and Albert lived in, a seven-story townhouse, and couldn't believe it. So it was actually Albert's son who said, Dad, this is embarrassing. You have to give her money. So Albert wrote her a $3 million check, and we're talking $3 million in 1940s money, and said, you can do whatever you want with it, and that way you'll have your own money. And Mary said, okay. And Albert said, I'll pay the household bills, but I will not pay for the telephone. He hated the telephone. So the telephone <laughs> bill was on her.
0: <laughs> and, of course, she goes on to uh, invest this money very, very wisely and, uh, and does all kinds of good things with it. And, uh, and she is off and running. One of the most remarkable moments in the book is when Mary meets Margaret Sanger for the first time who uh, at that time uh, was not perhaps widely known to the American public. She had founded an organization uh, called the Birth Control Federation of America. And Mary very much appreciated Margaret Sanger and uh, and the work that she was doing and wanted to support her. Uh, explain the difference that Albert made. This is uh, one of many instances in which Albert brought in his Know how and instincts as an advertising genius, the suggestion he made to Margaret Sanger, which she ultimately accepted.
1: Well, at that time, um, women and, and in the centuries before, women just kept having baby after baby after baby. And so Margaret herself became the caregiver for her. She was one of 17 children. She became the caregiver for her four or five younger siblings because her mother had died in childbirth. And then as an adult working for the public health service, she was call, often called to women's homes who had tried to, to end their pregnancies themselves, and they were bleeding out. And it just she said, this is nuts. Birth control was not something you could talk about at all. And in fact, it was illegal. According to the Comstock Act, you couldn't print pamphlets. You couldn't put the words on paper. And so Margaret just thought that this was something atrocious that needed changing. Mary was following Margaret's work in the newspaper, as was Albert from Chicago. So both of them were interested in um, what Margaret was doing in terms of trying to help women understand how to prevent pregnancy. And at that time, that that was the organization's Soul work, But the other interesting twist with this is that it was also something of great interest to the First Lady, Eleanor Roosevelt. And it was when Mary met Eleanor for the first time, it was not to discuss heart disease or cancer, but rather to discuss birth control. Albert, however, said to Margaret, listen. You got this all wrong. If you can't print birth control on paper, why would you have birth control in the name of your organization? That makes no sense. You can't even have letterhead. So he suggested that she change the organization's name to Planned Parenthood and because that's really also what women were doing. Margaret's story is another one that's so fascinating, and books have been written about her, Um, and she really – really saved countless women from, uh, from a very unpleasant and painful death.
0: Hmm. Well, of course, ultimately what, uh, what Mary Lasker is, is best known for is uh, her passionate work to uh, improve medical research uh, for the purpose of, you know, as she put it very simply, uh, to alleviate human suffering. And uh, with cancer and heart disease uh, at, at the at the top of the list, mental illness uh, right behind, and of course another cause for which she worked tirelessly uh, was that of, of for national health insurance. Um, there's so much we could talk about, and there's not much time, uh, and we will be leaving it to our listeners to explore all of this in more, greater detail in your fascinating book. I want you to tell our listeners about. A fascinating conversation that Mary had early on with a one Dr. Alan Gregg at the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research. Uh, They had a conversation uh, in which she asked how much of their efforts were devoted uh, to research in cancer. And uh, he quotes the ridiculously small amount of $50,000. And when she asks why, why so little, he responds, because there aren't any ideas. I mean it's just the notion like we don't we we don't know how to spend money, we don't know like what is next. It's just hard to imagine that state of affairs where in a sense our scientists felt so paralyzed, so powerless to move forward with something that seems so basic today as as researching a, a cure for cancer. Help us understand that state of affairs and what Mary did to change it.
1: Well, again, um, cancer was thought to be one disease that could be cured with one drug. They just didn't know what that drug was yet. And so that must have been incredibly frustrating because, as we now know, different cancers can be controlled and even um, removed from the body with different drugs but also at that time the national Institutes of health was just the national institute of health it was one institute there was an there was a national cancer institute that was sort of this you know redheaded stepsister <laughs> attached to nih but it wasn't a standalone and the idea that dr greg said that there were no ideas sort of the chicken or the egg do you research to find ideas or do you do you have ideas and then research and you know where do you start and so that was when albert said well we we just need to come up with ideas and the most the most fanatical and far-fetched ideas are the ones that are going to are going to result in something great. And so when they started their foundation, the Albert and Mary Lasker Foundation, that was the whole point. Those $1,000 awards that they began making were to jumpstart ideas and research. And those awards are still being given. I just attended the luncheon last month in New York City. Today, they're $250,000 awards, and they have become known as the American Nobels. because uh-huh. The people who win them often go on to win Nobel Prizes.
0: Wow. There is a really intriguing quote uh, at some point in your book in which you say, Mary Lasker believed scientific research could save lives even if the scientists didn't believe it themselves. That is such a, a fascinating notion that 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 a layman with essentially no scientific training whatsoever would in a sense see potential in medical research that the researchers themselves would not understand i mean not that she understood anything specific but just kind of the whole like she saw the possibilities that at least many of them did not that is also so hard to understand
1: well, let me put on my sexist hat here. Um, <laughs> most scientists of Mary's era were men, and super sorry to you and, and your male listeners, but you guys don't like to lose. <laughs> so if you, if you and I can speak wholeheartedly here, I, I have sons, no daughters, so I know this, Um if, you, if you're going down a road that doesn't glean anything and you've spent several years doing it and lots of money and you don't, you don't get to where you think you're going to go, that's, that's a black mark. And so people were really hesitant because then you can't do anything else after that. If you failed once, then failure again looks more likely so people were afraid scientists were afraid to follow these fanatical far-fetched ideas for fear that they would not be successful would not then be able to get other money or other positions and 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 just pull back from it
0: Hmm. well ultimately she makes tremendous difference and uh Lobbies incessantly on behalf of federal funding uh, for the vast expanse uh, expansion of of medical research, and uh, and she really helps to reshape one of uh, one of the country's most important cancer organizations. I think it was originally called the American Society for the Control of Cancer. Uh, aside from uh, a name change, uh, tell us what other kind of changes she was able to effect with this particular organization that we now call the American Cancer Society.
1: Well, at about the same time that they had visited um, Dr. Gregg at the Roosevelt Institute and learned that there were no great ideas, Mary and a friend went to visit um, the American Society for the Control of Cancer. They were doing no research. It only had doctors on its board with a $50,000 budget, which they spent to create pamphlets that were spread across the country every April, talking about the warning signs of cancer. And that was all they raised money for. And um, Mary sniffed when she, she gave them $5,000 and kind of said afterwards, well, they didn't want to cure cancer. They just wanted to control it. So together, again, with Albert and another power couple they were friends with in Florida, they did reimagine it. They called it the American Cancer Society. And in the first year, they quadrupled the fundraising. But they also said that there needed to be lay people on the board of directors. And this was something that Mary then saw or made sure happened in all of her work going forward, all of the committees, all of the things that she did, and it still exists today, were always a mixture of medical people, researchers and doctors, and lay people and patients now, because that's an important mix. <clears throat> and so, in addition, because Albert, uh, who still had his ad agency, bought so much radio time, he persuaded the president of NBC to allow the word cancer to be said on the radio. It was an absolute first. Bibber McGee and Molly was a very popular radio show, and at the end of one episode, um, they had a little skit about one of their friends thinking he had cancer, and then the plea was to make a donation. By that time, we were Involved in the in the war in World War II, they had donations come from ships on the Pacific, you know, with a dollar and two dollars. Hmm. And by that time, they quintupled the fundraising, and they were off and running.
0: Wow! Yes, April twenty eighth, nineteen forty five, was the occasion of that historic radio broadcast, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and just one of a of a, a plethora of uh, extraordinary moments uh, in the life. Of Mary Lasker and her husband Albert Lasker and the book at hand which tells all of this and much much more is titled crusade to heal America the remarkable life of Mary Lasker who by the way uh, died on February 21st 1994 uh, how old was she 994. Ninety-five. 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 <clears throat> An amazing life, lived very well. The book published by the, by the Mayo Clinic Press, the author Judy Pearson. Judy Pearson, thank you so much for uh, allowing all of us to, uh, to learn about this incredible woman and her exceptional life. And thank you for being my morning show guest today. I was so happy to be able to speak with you about your great book.
1: Thank you so much. I hope people visit judithlpearson.com. You can read the prologue and click the button that says, I want an autograph, and I'll send you a book plate.
0: (laughs) Very good. Thank you again.